My name is Dario Hasenstab. I have two degrees in international affairs, and I'm here with Balder Hagritz, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze how to understand the art of doing nothing through the lens of the Western bubble. Because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. If you would like to know more about this concept, how this podcast started, or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. Hi, Balder. Um, why are we speaking about this topic today? Why are we speaking about the art of doing nothing? Hello, Dario. We had a conversation last week about a dangerous lion walking around in Berlin. And uh, given that you were in Berlin, I was, of course, terrified that anything could happen to you in such a scary situation. So maybe you should um, tell the listeners about that. Exactly. Uh, so to the listeners who don't know, um, this happened about uh, two weeks ago uh, from when we published this episode. And uh, Berlin woke up to the news that there is a lioness um, walking around in, in the south of Berlin. And, you know, the warning apps went off and the radio was blasting it all over. Um, and then people were supposed to stay in their houses. You know, we kind of like COVID flashbacks. Uh, parents were not supposed to bring their children to school and the kindergarten. Um, and what happened is that a, a massive search hunt uh, flooded the south of Berlin with 200 police officers, helicopters, drones, hunters, zoo experts, all being on the hunt for a lioness. And then for 30 hours, um, all, of, all of Berlin, to be honest, the rest of Germany didn't really care, but all of Berlin was going completely bollocks. And then uh, it turns out that these 200 police officers, the helicopters, the hunters, and the drones that they were hunting a wild boar, um, who on a video um, that basically sparked all of this, appeared to like a lioness when when you wanted to see it, but to be honest, after 30 hours looking at the video again and people telling me this is a wild boar, yes, it was a wild boar. Um, so this was a very nice example of an article um, that you actually wrote a few years ago about COVID called The Art of Doing Nothing, um, where maybe the better option here would have been instead of chasing a wild boar through the woods, uh, it would have been better to simply do nothing and wait. Yes, and we, we had an interesting conversation about that afterwards, about, you know, but the, how about the people feeling the panic? Is it important to for the police then to show that they're doing something in order to uh, at least put all those poor Berliners at ease to make, to, to make sure that nobody's scared of this potential lion? You get into interesting psychological conversations, what is important, what isn't, but it's very obvious that in this case, afterwards, you could say that those 200 police people would have been better used somewhere else, doing something else rather than looking for a wild boar, right? And so that question, that cost-benefit analysis of here we've got a potential problem or a real problem, such as with COVID, potential with respect to the lioness, which turned out to be a wild boar. Uh, do you actually take action? To what extent? How do you go about it? And what you notice is that in human society and certainly within the Western bubble at a foreign policy level, we have a tendency to overact rather than underact. And that is something to take into consideration because over overreacting is is something that is costly, that is uh, has uh, a, potentially a very high price to pay. And what are the facts? 
In this episode, we will reference a few concepts foreign to international relations and want to define them prior to our conversation. First, action bias, also known as the bias for action, is a cognitive ten tendency where individuals feel a strong inclination to take action, even when it may not be the most appropriate or effective course of action in a given situ situation. It is a behavioral bias that often occurs in response to an uncertain or high-pressure situation. Moving on to the precautionary principle, which states that if a product or action or a policy has a suspected risk of causing harm to the public or the environment, protective action should be supported before there is complete scientific proof of a risk. And lastly, the sunk cost fallacy is our tendency to continue with an endeavor we've invested money, effort or time into, even if the current costs outweigh the benefits. For an example, choosing to finish a boring movie because you've already paid for the ticket. What is the bubble? So when we talk about uh, the bubble, let's first talk about the psychological patterns behind this um, before we move on to kind of the Western bubble aspect of this. Uh, so we are simply psychologically trained to take action. Right. And that makes sense in a situation of walking through the forest and you hear some rustling behind you and that could be an dangerous animal that's about to eat you and ten thousand years ago that make would have made a lot of sense you don't want to take any risks you want to run away uh, we from a very long-term evolutionary perspective as human social beings have been telling each other action is better than inaction and do something rather than do nothing doing nothing is frowned upon uh, this is closely related to being brave, right? We admire bravery above other virtues. Hard work is not admired as much as bravery. Um, and therefore, when something happens where you can signal to the rest of the world that you're brave, you're incentivized to actually do so, to take that action to show your bravery. We as human beings over tens of thousands of years have been training ourselves to take action, to be brave, even in situations when that is actually not the best course of action. And that is a real problem because that leads to uh, very significant uh, damages at times or uh, badly used resources, right? Because very often taking action has significant costs involved, which means that you could have spent those resources, the time, the energy on something more productive rather than running away or jumping uh, in front of a child to protect them or something like that. I mean, there's never a movie where the hero simply does nothing, um, where the hero just sits in a cafe and, and watches, uh, watches the problem evolve before taking action. Um, that, that's, not, that's not within us. Over and over again, everywhere around us, on TV, but also in our daily lives, right? We are told to... to show our ability to actually act. It's all about acting. Uh, you see a problem, you see someone who fell down, uh, fell down on the floor in the street, help them out. That's what you're supposed to do. You see someone who seems to be struggling carrying her shopping bags, help them out. And, and very often that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, very often helping someone is a good thing. 
but we don't seem to care anymore about the cost-benefit analysis of that. We don't know the, the cost often involved of our action, and we don't know whether our action is actually going, make, going to make things better. For example, how about someone struggling with their backs, you try to help them out, and then they feel that you're calling them old, or you're calling them weak, or something like that. That kind of cost-benefit analysis doesn't occur to us because we want to take the action to show that we're good human beings. Yeah, I mean, not only feeling weak, but it's something that I personally um, kind of had to become aware of is that sometimes, you know, you openly walking up to people and be like, do you need help? And let's say they are a bit frightened in general, uh, might feel very intimidating to them uh, and push them actually in, into situations they do not want to be in. For example, exactly that. Um, I, I in, my, in my own life, uh, I stopped basically having the problem of do you stand up in the metro uh, or in the bus for someone um, or not by basically always standing up when there's when there's a busy metro not sitting down in that one seat that's available basically the idea here is that in the past i would sometimes stand up and people would kind of be offended like how old do you think i am why would you stand up for me i'm not i'm only 55 it's not always easy to tell whether someone is old or not or whether someone is pregnant or not, for example, right? And you don't want to offend them. And that ha has happened a few times that I stood up chivalrous and all that, and that I got a dirty look. And now what's happened is that I just refuse to get myself in that situation. So even if there's an empty seat, I won't sit down for on the off chance that on the next stop, someone might come in who wants to sit down there. So I don't have to deal with that. That leads to me now standing up all the time in the metro when 90% of the time I could actually probably sit down. <laughs> yeah, well, what's the cost-benefit of an analysis of that? Well, <laughs> that's the question, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's a difficult psychological process, this. These are the games we play with ourselves. And this is an actual psychological um, phenomenon. I mean, so the, the action bias in itself, not you standing in the metro now. Um, and in, in a, a prominent example, and one that I uh, I felt like would be good to explain this, um, is actually coming from football, uh, from soccer to our American audience, um, where in a, in a penalty shootout, um, so when basically the, well, the player from the opposing team gets an uh, unblocked shot uh, at the goal and there's only the goalkeeper standing there, um, then basically there, there's an, an inherent bias within the goalkeepers to jump into a corner, uh, basically making a decision before the before the, the striker shoots that, okay, I, I don't have enough time to actually wait and see where's the ball going because they, they shoot too, the, the shot is too hard. I need to jump before. And this has actually been, uh, been scientifically, um, I mean, kind of they, they looked into the situation where most goalkeepers, they would actually have a higher chance of saving uh, a penalty by just standing in the middle because uh, 20 to 30% of the shots get, uh, are aimed at the middle than making the decision to jump left and right. And what's the reason behind this? Well, you don't want to look like an idiot because if you just stand there in the middle of the goal and somebody shoots into the left corner and you and you don't move at all, then you look like a you look like an idiot, and then your teammates get angry, um, and the fans might get angry, and your coach might get angry. So there, this is one of those examples where humans feel the action bias. And why do you look like an idiot? Because of those tens of tens of thousands of years that we've been training ourselves that action is better than inaction, right? That's, so it, it's a deeply psychological thing that your teammates get upset if you don't do anything, if you just stand there. Uh, objectively, rationally speaking, there's nothing more idiotic or less idiotic about standing there compared to diving into one corner, 
There is absolutely no objective reason to feel more upset as a teammate with your goalkeeper doing one thing or the other thing. But psychologically, we've been trained that diving into the corner means that you are active and it means that you are energetic and it means that you made a real effort and you don't want to be seen not to make an effort, even if that effort actually makes things worse. And so if we combine all of these things now, if we combine uh, the action bias together with you know that reward of bravery, we kind of move into the hero complex. And here, I mean, we want to call it the American hero complex, because um, this is a very interesting uh, statistic uh, that, that, that we, we, we stumbled upon be, before this episode, is that American firefighters, um, compared to firefighters in the rest of the world, but uh, for this example, particularly German firefighters, they have a higher on-duty f- uh, fatality rate. Um, so it's simply that more American firefighters die while fighting fires uh, than in Germany. And there's a very interesting kind of dynamic behind this. I mean, there's a multitude of reasons, but there's an article uh, that we found written by a German division chief uh, of firefighters, Susanne Klatt, um, in an article that we will, of course, uh, put down into, into the episode description. Um, but she analyzes that it is a lot of times, it is also about the decision-making process before going into a fire or not. And kind of the decision-making, um, well, in, in Germany, it's very much based on this matrix where you need to decide, okay, are we actually going to put our own lives into danger here? Um, all lives are valuable, not just the ones that basically need to be saved from the fire, but also the ones of the of the uh, f- uh, firefighters. And a lot of times coming to the conclusion, well, maybe we shouldn't engage here because it's simply not safe for the personnel. What is crucial about this is that uh, from an efficacy perspective, so from how many lives are actually being saved by the fire service, Germany and the United States are roughly equal, right? So it's not as if the Germans are more cowardly If they were only a little bit more brave, they would save more lives or they would save more houses from burning down. No, the the, the actual results of the fire service between the two countries is roughly equal, but more American firefighters die. So then you surely, from a cost-benefit analysis, you have to ask yourself, hang on, what's going on here? And this is exactly that phenomenon that we want to talk about, the idea of going into the fire, of jumping in there, even if you kind of know that you can't save that cat or that child that's sleeping upstairs, and that you are putting yourself at risk, is more highly valued in the United States than it is in Germany. It is that hero complex of wanting to show that you are brave, that you are serving your community. And just standing there, watching the house burn down, knowing that there might be a child inside, is just unacceptable psychologically, culturally, in that case in the United States, whereas maybe it is more acceptable in a country like Germany, where maybe the cost-benefit analysis is a bit more rational and less biased psychologically. I think the cultural differences are very interesting to look at here, uh, because, I mean, of course, the United States, you know, Hollywood, you are a firefighter is a hero. You know, and then especially if you if you manage to save that child in the burning house and you walk out with a child in your arms. Um, so firefighters in the United States are definitely portrayed more as heroes than uh, than in Germany. And I think there was one very interesting uh, quote from Susanne Klatt in that article where she said, 
quote, during all these different training programs, the first thing they hammer into our heads is that your safety comes first. We risk a lot if we can save a lot, but if it's unlikely that someone can be saved, we don't sacrifice ourselves, end quote. Because they need to do that cost-benefit analysis. And I think that this is something so almost painful to think about when when you're standing when you when when you're just standing there let's say in front of in front of a burning house is to first is to first well let me let me drop a matrix and let me create my cost benefit analysis uh, because I have the time of course there's a house burning and someone's burning inside well so what other factors that are involved how's the weather today is there a possibility of rain you know that cost benefit analysis seems so counterintuitive to us wanting to just save someone that the child that is sleeping in a burning house. Indeed, and, and sometimes we we don't have sufficient information to even engage in it. So then it becomes like an intuitive cost-benefit analysis because we just don't have sufficient data, right? And that intuitive cost-benefit analysis um, can also be biased in one way or the other. Uh, and in the case of the German intuitive cost-benefit analysis, they probably then... Uh, emphasize certain things as the value of their own lives more than in the intuitive cost-benefit analysis of the American firefighter. Now, all of that is fine. Uh, the you know you can say okay, but that is just a subjective kind of intuitive approach, and one culture has values one thing a little bit more than the other. Okay, cool. But uh, there are clearly many situations in which a firefighter knows that if they go into a house, the chances of them coming out are minimal. And to give that safety net to the German to say, okay, I can't, if I do this, my two children lose their father or lose their mother. And I, on the tiny little possibility that I'm going to save the child in that burning house, that is not worth it. Giving that safety to the German to make that decision, to make that determination is very important. Whereas in the United States, there is no such safety that that American firefighter will always be frowned upon for not going into that house, right? So you, you want to have firefighters or anyone in society be able to make an intuitive cost-benefit analysis that is as rational as possible um, and not be forced into bravery, forced into a hero complex just for the sake of it before listeners get upset with us obviously saving a child is important but only if there's a reasonable chance that you are going to save your child and that you don't die yourself because you also have value exactly you might be the father to two children you might be the, the pro provider in the family um apart from all the you know psychological trauma that your children might, might have to go through um so so there's i mean definitely value in that cost benefit analysis um, but if we now build upon our little toolbox of action bias and hero thinking, uh, there's one more, and that's the sunk cost uh, fallacy, which especially after we have taken action, it's difficult to accept the fact that, okay, the action I've taken so far is not working, or it might actually be increasing uh, the costs here. It, the cost no longer, uh, the benefit no longer outweighs the cost. Maybe I need to actually accept the fact that these are sunk costs. But this is something that we humans are inherently bad at, right? Is I feel like only hardcore economists can do this. I personally definitely can't do it. To accept the fact that I've invested so much into this already, but if I keep on investing, it's just going to get worse. Um, so I might as well just write off the sunk costs. That's something that I personally can't do. 
that's again a very deeply ingrained psychological uh, phenomenon, and and that is very often seen in business as well, right? You would think business uh, in a capitalist society is all there about the money making, and you just every every day you calculate whether it's profitable to continue or not. No, no, we see a lot of businesses who've actually literally invested a hundred million in a project, and they're going to invest another hundred million because they don't want to lose the the cost that has already been um, invested without any serious chance of actually recouping the, the cost, right? This is a very, very common human problem. And in the case of this episode, what it does, it continues our action. So it's not the thing that sparks our action, but it continues our action way longer and with much greater costs than it should, right? So you do, you walk into that, you're a firefighter, you walk into that uh, burning building, you um, have burned your hands, you've burned your arms. It's completely obvious that you're not going to save the child, but you continue, you're going to continue because you already are that far in and you don't want to walk out with just having some um, burn burning tissue um, and not actually coming out with that child. So you go in further and further and in the end you die because you couldn't take the step to just turn around and say, okay, look, sorry, this is it. So let's apply all of this uh, to the context of this podcast. Um, so we have that action bias, we have that you know hero complex, we are terrible at evaluating some cost. Um, and th these were very micro examples, you know, firefighters or you know, talking to your family or football or going to the movie. Um, but this also happens on the macro level, on foreign policy, for an example, um, especially within the Western bubble. It is a huge, huge issue in foreign policy, especially for the West, because the West is so psychologically irrational if you like uh, the the issue here is that action bias is very closely related to bravery as we said and bravery is very much related to good versus evil and evil doesn't have to have a human face evil could just be a child drowning that is evil that's an evil event and we as the good guys want to jump into the pool to save the child from drowning but in the case of foreign policy it is very much about we see an evil dictator on the other side of the world. We obviously know of ourselves that we are the good guys because that's the Western bubble. That's what we tell uh, ourselves every day. We are democratic liberal societies and we want to take action against what we perceive to be that evil dictator. And the problem there is that our action against that evil dictator probably doesn't make the world a better place but we feel very uncomfortable by letting an evil dictator be because that would be inaction. And we are told by ourselves, by our society, that action is better than inaction. So we try to get rid of that evil dictator because that's what we do. Good guys fighting the bad guys. And by doing so, we cause tremendous destruction. We cause many, many civilian deaths. But we justify it by the simple dichotomy, the simple contrast of us versus them, the West versus the non-West. And especially in a democracy, I, I feel like if you are a democratically elected politician, you have to respond to your electorate. Um, and then there, 
you know, the electorate sees suffering in the world. Uh, not taking action must be must be very difficult, because I mean, uh, well, it's easy to announce sanctions against another country, especially when they do not necessarily hurt you, and you can just say, well, we are doing our part. We're making sure that this evil dictator does not, well, get X amount of of uh, I don't know food. Uh, because he's just going to use it to increase his popularity among the population. So you feel really good about having imposed sanctions on this dictator and, well, who's suffering? It might be the population that you're actually trying to protect from the evil dictator. Um, but at least you've done something uh, to signal towards your own population that you you are on the right side and you are one of the good guys and you have taken action against the bad guy. And what's what's interesting about all of this is that there's no actual serious push for that cost-benefit analysis, right? So I understand that sometimes a cost-benefit analysis is difficult or even impossible because of the lack of data. But you can at least make an attempt to roughly say, okay, getting rid of this dictator now, doing something at a foreign policy level, is this, what are the benefits of getting rid of him? It's usually him, dictators. And what are the costs involved in that? But there's actually no demand for that. So when um, European countries get involved in uh, Libya, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, the whole conversation is about how evil is Gaddafi, how evil is uh, Assad, how evil was Saddam Hussein, how evil are the Taliban. The conversation is not, okay, are we, is it actually possible for us to get rid of them in the first place? And if so, what are we doing to make the world better? How does that make the world better? And what are the dangers? How does our action make the world worse? That kind of cost-benefit analysis hardly ever appears in newspapers. And afterwards, it's also not a question we ask. Hey, what we just did in, in Libya or in Syria or in uh, Iraq, was that actually a step that improved the lives of the Iraqis or the Syrians or the Libyans? Is it uh, something that has made the world a better place or not? That question is not being asked because it's all about taking action against evil, not standing by. And that, of course, has led to enormous destruction caused by our beloved societies. And can you explain to our listeners what is the problem? And one of these examples of destruction, um, or well, I mean, the, this, I mean, all the actions with regards to this lioness here in Berlin. I'm not sure whether they were super destructive. I hope that none of the police officers trampled some important, I don't know, little little trees, or that they trampled through nature. However, no, but 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 it's not it's not just whether they've trampled on something, but how could us two hundred police officers have been better? put to work, right? What? How could they have helped actual Berliners in doing um, the, the positive, constructive stuff that you would expect the police to do? So it's not just 200 police officers wasting their time. They could have spent their time on better things. But that now didn't happen because they were looking for the lioness. Exactly. So we're talking about lost, lost, uh, lost hours, working hours. Um, but we're also looking at the taxpayer uh, money that was spent on all of this. Um, a, a lot, a lot of money uh, spent on this. And then, I mean, you, you also, uh, I mean, additionally to that, you, you might have the the damage, uh, the psychological damage that some people have suffered. I know that the majority of Berlin 
was very entertained um, or, and, and, on, and on Twitter or X, uh, uh, as we call it nowadays. Um, but I also know that of cases where parents were terrified of letting their children or their pets outside and basically kept them inside for, for, for 30 hours living in, living in that distress. So yes, there's a lot of uh, damages involved in this, in this uh, micro example. And then the one example that actually your article, The Art of Doing Nothing, was about um, was COVID-19. Because that was also one of those examples where very little information was available. Um, people were dying somehow. And so something had to be done. And so politicians decided to take very, very drastic action in in form of lockdowns, thinking, okay, this is going to curb the rate of infections, but not thinking about if, let's say, Europe locks everything down for for six to eight weeks and nobody consumes anything anymore. Uh, that's my that's the example that I always use. Nobody goes to the uh, goes to the store to buy any clothes anymore. Um, what are the workers in Bangladesh going to do that depend on this fast fashion supply chain that we have established? Are they suddenly going to be out of jobs and um, not have those that lovely European social welfare state that will for two months pay their wages? No, you suddenly have a lot of people out of a job suffering tremendously. Yeah, what was fascinating here was that you read a lot, and people can still Google them, a lot of articles in those first couple of months especially, where people were outraged by the suggestion that economics and finances should be part of the equation, right? You had a lot of people um, who were critical of lockdown because what you said, the impact on the developing world, but also the impact on the economy at home in Europe, in North America, uh, in Japan, China, obviously. And when people wrote that, hey, this is going to be really bad for our economy, then straight away the reaction was, how dare you talk about money right now? Because this is about saving lives. That connects two really interesting psychological phenomena, the fear and the, the overemphasis on saving lives right even if you don't know if you can save those lives but saving lives basically anything else goes out of the window because saving lives just like the child in the burning building needs to be saved even if it kills the firefighter and secondly our intuitive dislike for valuing money you shouldn't be valuing money you shouldn't value the economy but of course the economy is lives as well a country doing badly economically has very significant impact on people's lives on people who are very borderline poor people who are work without a, um, a salary who are, who depend on their daily activity lockdown made life hell for all those people that is not just thinking about abstract money that is about real human beings suffering because of our action against lockdown uh, sorry, our, our uh, action against COVID, such as lockdown. So there was no serious conversation at the time about if we're going to take all these anti-COVID measures, what are going to be the negative consequences of those measures? And is lockdown actually going to help in the way that it does? Neither of those were satisfactorily answered. And now we know that lockdown actually had relatively little impact and we know that uh, on the COVID but it had significant impact on the well-being of society we know the psychological damage we know the economic damage we know the sociological damage we did an awful lot of damage through 
all of these measures, including the face masks and all those kinds of things. And no one demanded at the time from the government, could you please explain to us what the cost-benefit analysis is? Why not? Because we were fearful, we saw a problem, and we had to take action against, a prob against that problem. And if a government was seen to not take action, such as, for example, Sweden, then they would be ostracized, then they would be attacked from every angle. How dare you let your elderly population die like that? How dare you not take action to save people's lives? And if we apply all of this, I mean, so this, this was COVID, this happened globally. Um, I mean, we've talked about this in a, in a previous episode, um, but, but COVID happened globally. I mean, the Chinese government reacted in well, an even more extreme way. Uh, but if we apply this again to the uh, Western bubble and to the foreign policy level in particular, uh, this becomes very obvious with examples you already mentioned. Um, for an example, Afghanistan, right? Uh, you have the attacks uh, of, of, of September 11th. Um, there is a feeling of we need action in the United States. Uh, I mean, we've analyzed the uh, intellectual uh, groundwork for this in Fukuyama and Huntington in the past. And then you have George W. Bush, whom we also did an episode on, um, kind of really going into this and taking action. Going into Afghanistan, going into Iraq, um, you know, because we need to take action. And then add on top of that the sunk cost uh, fallacy, um, really not pulling out until 20 years later, creating tremendous amount of costs for the United States itself, I mean, taxpayer-wise, human suffering, and as we've discussed in the past, particularly for the local population in Iraq, um, and I mean, the effects that it had on the entire Middle East. Yeah, the sunk cost fallacy was uh, also very, very clear in the Vietnam, the infamous Vietnam War, right? Where slowly over time, okay, we've sent this amount of soldiers, now we're going to send more soldiers, now we're going to send more because we can't go back anymore. Without anyone in 1966, 67, 68 saying, okay, this is enough now, it's not working, let's get out. Well, that's that's the, the reality of, of foreign policy. And there's an interesting parallel between these cases of Iraq, Afghanistan and COVID. Both are situations where there are an enormous amount of unknown variables. There's an enormous amount of complexity. In the case that you walk past a lake and you see a child drowning, the number of variables you have to take into account aren't that great. I mean, you have to ask yourself, can I swim? Because otherwise I shouldn't jump in to save the child because I'll just drown next to the child. But if I can swim and if I can see that the child can't swim or is in serious trouble and the weather is not too bad, then it probably makes sense for me to jump in because I don't run much risk and the chances of me saving the life of the child are significant. And the worst that can happen is that my clothes get a bit wet. Big deal. But in the case of these foreign policy issues, just like COVID, there are so many variables that you simply do not know. It's not just the known unknowns, so the things that you know that you don't know, but it's also the unknown unknowns, right? It's the, you, there are certain variables that we don't even know exist, let alone that we know how to use them in our analysis, in our decision-making processes. And the result of that especially if you're not interested in finding out about that cost-benefit analysis. Let me once again remind listeners, um, at least some of you will have heard me complain about this before, how during COVID a government 
official told me when I asked these questions about COVID, they, they told me uh, at the time of war, we don't do Excel sheets. Basically, we don't do cost-benefit analysis because we're at war with COVID. The same when we're at war with Al-Qaeda, when we're at war with Saddam Hussein, we don't do cost-benefit analysis because we need to defeat the evil enemy with the perverse effect that terrorism actually went up because of our fight against Al-Qaeda. Because by bombing Afghanistan, there was an enormous recruitment drive by ISIS and by Al-Qaeda to actually uh, say to the uh, young Arab world, hey, look at what the West is doing to your countries. Look at what the West is doing to us. Come and help us out. And there was this huge increase in anti-Western sentiments and young men willing to die fighting the West. So the complexity of these situations means that very, very often the best thing to do is not do anything because you don't know if you're going to make things worse or not. But we can't because we are trained to take action. And what now? So is this the future? Uh, to simply do nothing? At least to do nothing more often than we currently are used to, right? Way more often the right type of policy, certainly in uh, foreign policy, is to wait and see. Even if that makes you look cowardly or it makes you look passive. But don't feel that you can control the world. The world is not as makeable as you think it is at a foreign policy level. You, even if you're the United States with your enormous military capabilities or you're Europe with your enormous economic capabilities, you cannot control all the dynamics that you unleash the moment you aggressively go into other countries. You do not know what the outcome is gonna be. And if you don't know what the outcome is gonna be, there is absolutely nothing noble there's nothing good, there's nothing positive about going in anyway simply because you feel that you're the good guys and they're the bad guys. That's just not enough. Also, um, try to actually get a more reasonable assessment, right? Try to do a cost-benefit analysis that is a little bit closer to reality rather than your fairy tale world where killing an evil dictator somehow automatically makes the world a better place. Why are we so bad at making a cost-benefit analysis? I mean, on a personal level, I, I understand why. But like in general, on a foreign policy level in particular, I, I mean, a good cost-benefit analysis is difficult and it takes time. And usually you don't have that time. Um, but what, what else is there to us humans and to politicians in the Western bubble that makes us so bad at cost-benefit analysis? Because we're non-rational creatures, right? Or maybe even irrational creatures. We are creatures who are driven by all kinds of impulses that are not rational. And cost-benefit analysis in itself is a rational exercise. Now, the problem is we don't have infinite data. We don't have perfect information. So with imperfect information, it's hard to do a good cost-benefit analysis. If you don't know how the Iraqi population is going to react to your invasion exactly then it's hard to actually make projections to create scenarios but still you should try obviously because without having some kind of sense how do you know whether you're actually going to have a positive impact or not um, but also simply because we don't like that kind of calculation we we 
as human beings want to be seen as the heroes. We want to be seen as the ones who saw human suffering across the globe, who saw people being oppressed by Saddam Hussein or people being oppressed by the Taliban and who can tell their grandchildren, we did something about it. Somehow that being able to tell your grandchildren, we did something about it, is valued more than the chance of you actually causing a lot of damage. And so the cost-benefit analysis is our warped human psychology versus a incomplete rational analysis. And in that case, we always go with our warped human psychology rather than incomplete analysis. I assume there's also some very difficult philosophical questions that we would need to answer first in these moments. Um, I mean, it's very difficult to quantify the value of human life, right? Where you need to you need to decide in that moment which life is more valuable. Is it the life of the firefighter who, let's say, is 55, I know, has lived a happy life, and then you have the small child who, um, I don't know, maybe still has has its li whole life ahead of uh, ahead of it. Um, that's something that we humans are not very good at, is kind of quantifying the value of human life, right? And that was fascinating during COVID once again, because there you saw that elderly were dying and some people were trying to make the case, myself included, that even though we don't want any old people to die, uh, there is a significant difference between a child dying and a 90-year-old dying, simply in terms of... Uh, years of life lost, right? That's not to say before people got upset that the 90-year-old doesn't have the right to live or doesn't have value. Of course, the 90-year-old has value, a lot of value. But there is, in the cost-benefit analysis, a rational conversation about we'd rather have a five-year-old survive rather than a 90-year-old survive. That is a reasonable conversation to have. But all of a sudden, that wasn't allowed because that went against our intuitive um, sense of no, 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 no. But now you are devaluing all human life. You can't be rational about this. You can't do that cost-benefit analysis about age because we have to save every life, even if they're 90 year, 90 year old. And then if you try to point out, hang on, but there is a cost involved in messing up the psychology of a whole young generation. There's a cost involved in having a lot of people suffer through the consequences of your action then say yeah no 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 but the only thing that matters is saving the life of the 90 year old um, so we have significant difficulty we find it very difficult to think about those things in rational terms and then at a foreign policy level put into the mix this real sense of western bubble thinking where everything we the west does is somehow driven by good motivations and everything an authoritarian regime does is driven by evil motivations. And you get into this very toxic kind of attitude where essentially anything goes. And afterwards, we don't critically look at ourselves because at least we were the brave knights who tried to democratize the world and free the people from oppression. This seems like a great moment to end today's conversation on the art of doing nothing. If you have any questions, comments, or regards, make sure to send us an email to 
thewesternbubble at gmail.com and we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western Bubble. That is actually not it from my side because, Balder, when you quoted me last week uh, or two weeks ago in the episode on Simon Tisdall, I thought I might um, actually return the favor and thought I would quote uh, you from the article you wrote on the art of doing nothing with your closing... That, that is... That is- actually surprised out here because when you said this i panicked because i thought hang on i don't have my quote yet but this is the reason because you didn't remind me okay go ahead uh exactly and um basically uh the the quote of you at the end of this article reads it is those who have mastered the art of doing nothing who need to lead society they understand that humans cannot control everything and that often the humble approach of inactivity is by far the best option